Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 66, The Problem with Canon. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks, guys, for listening in to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. And if you are new to the podcast, I want to encourage you to go over to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh, and ask to join the group today. The Filming with Josh Facebook group is a great place to come join conversations that we have that are all about video. We talk about editing and live streaming and filming and techniques for growing your business. We talk a lot about contracts and legal stuff, just everything that has to do with video production. We talk about it over on Filming with Josh. So come join that group, be a part of the conversations, ask questions, and join our growing community. Today's podcast, we will get into in a few minutes. It's going to be an interesting podcast, and it's all about Canon and some things that I think that, well, quite frankly, some some things that I think that they've done wrong, some things that I, I think they could have done better on that would help them be um, a little more popular today. But we'll get into all that in a minute. First, I just want to talk a little bit about things that are going on in my business. Um, some of you who are in the Filming with Josh group <clears throat> probably saw I made a post last week that I picked up a new FX6, a second one. Super pumped about that. I uh, I love the FX6. I wanted to buy a second one, but thought it would take a very long time. I've had my my FX6, my, my original one, since uh, February 1 of 2021. So I got mine pretty quick after it came out. Uh, but I, I didn't plan on grabbing a second one for a while because I... I know how hard they are to find, but I got a phone call um, out of nowhere last week from my friends over at Texas Media Systems, and they had one in stock and told me it was mine if I wanted it. So I quickly scrapped together some money and ran up to Texas Media Systems and picked it up. I'm super pumped about it because I, I recently got a, a DJI RS3 Pro. I had the RS2, um, but I picked up the RS3 Pro hoping that one day... I would be able to run an FX6 on it. The RS3 Pro has longer arms than the RS2 has, so it's a little easier to balance bigger cameras like an FX6, which the FX6 is not really a big camera. It's actually quite small for a cinema camera, but it's bigger than you know a mirrorless camera. Um, and you could balance it on the DJI RS2 um, with certain lenses and counterweights and whatnot, but it's definitely easier on the RS3 Pro. So I already had the RS3 Pro, and, and now that I have the... Um, second fx6 i felt like i'm gonna i'm gonna make that what i run on a gimbal now instead of mirrorless cameras my main reason for that is um mirrorless cameras are great on gimbals they're small they're lightweight but the whole nd thing sucks because if you are shooting outside you got to add nd external nd whether it's with a matte box or you're screwing on nd whatever you know whatever kind of nd you want to use it adds weight to the front of the camera so you have to balance your camera on the gimbal for the ND, but if you go inside and you take the ND off, <laughs> now you have to rebalance your, your gimbal. So you have to stop what you're doing, take the ND off, put it somewhere in a backpack or your pocket or whatever, and then you gotta rebalance your gimbal and tune it and then shoot. And then if you're gonna go back outside with your gimbal, you gotta pull the ND back out, put it on and do it all over again. And I could not stand that. It was driving me up a wall. And I have had a bunch of shoots over the past few years 
um, where I have been required to shoot on gimbals um, by whom I was hired by. And there was a lot of filming inside and outside. And I swear to you, I was changing and taking off and adding NDs and rebalancing like 10 to 15 times a day. And that's just a waste of time. So I really wanted to run an FX6 on a gimbal, but my FX6 was kind of rigged up and it would have taken too much time to break it down. But now that I have a second one, um, it's going to be pretty much stripped down most of the time. I'm going to run it on a gimbal as my dedicated gimbal cam. I'm going to use it on sliders and obviously it'll be used as second angle cameras for interviews and stuff like that. Still running my Sony A1s. I love them. They're going to be moved back to uh, C-cam work now and uh, obviously still be my main photo cameras and time-lapse cameras. Um, but the uh, second FX6 will move into the role of my main P-cam now, um, which I'm super pumped about because I love built-in ND filters and I love having waveforms and um, LUT monitoring and shutter angle and, you know, all the things you get with most cinema cameras that you don't get with mirrorless. So I'm super excited to have have that in my kit now. Um, the FX6s are great cameras. And, you know, I kind of was wondering, is an FX6 going to feel big and heavy on a gimbal? Because I've never ran an FX6 on a gimbal. But honestly, on the RS3 Pro, it felt great. I, I ran it all day long the day after I got it, the FX6. Uh, the second one I, I shot, I was like a 12 hour shoot day, 10 hour, 12 hour shoot day, something like that. And I was on uh, the gimbal most of the day. And I honestly felt the same at the end of the day as I normally would feel with a mirrorless camera. I didn't really notice much of a weight difference. Um, and honestly, being able to go inside and just hit a button and turn the ND off and then go back um, outside and hit a button and turn the ND back on. I mean, that was pretty nice. <laughs> it was awesome not having to screw around with uh, indies anymore on my gimbal and not have to balance or anything. I balanced it the day before and never had to touch it the entire shoot day, um, which was really, really awesome. So I was really, really pumped about that. Um, so I'm pretty pumped. That's one thing that's going on in my business. Another is live streaming has picked way back up. In fact, it's picked up so much that I just sent out a contract yesterday to do uh, seven more live streams for a company. Um, that is, is wanting to do a lot of live stream stuff. And those seven live streams are between now and January. So I mean, we're doing a lot of them coming up. And I'm really pumped about that because I love live streaming. Live streaming is awesome because it's just a different way to make money in your video business. You know, if you have the cameras and you have um, the mics and stuff like that, I mean, why not just spend a little bit of money and get the live streaming uh, equipment that you need to take all the equipment you already own live and you can make some extra money. And what's really cool about live streaming is number one, you don't have to edit when you come home, typically, <laughs> unless you want to edit the live stream and you're saving like a, a resolve project. If you're using like a, a Blackmagic A2 Mini Pro ISO, where you can actually save the live stream as a resolve project and, and alter it after the fact, which I do that if a client requests it. But most of the time when I come home, I'm not editing anything. Like you're done. Like you, once the stream's done, you're done. You get your paycheck, you know, it's over with. And I love that aspect because it's just quick cash and you can charge more than your normal day rate. I typically charge uh, almost double my day rate, uh, sometimes even more depending on how complicated the stream is um, because you're, you're basically doing everything you would normally do for a day of filming but then you're adding all the live stream stuff and taking it live, which is more complicated. It's more, there's more risk there. You know, what if the internet has an issue or what if the stream doesn't stream well, which can happen. I mean, there are things that can happen. So the added risk, the added gear, the added skills and knowledge allows you to increase your rate because it's just a different product. So you make more money for your time 
and you don't have to edit when you come home. So I love live streaming, and uh, I've been doing live streaming, I guess, for about five or six years now. Um, it obviously picked up during COVID, and then it slowed down in 2021 uh, a little bit, and it slowed down some this year, but um, at the beginning of the year. But now it's starting to really pick back up, which is awesome. I've gotten a lot of phone calls about it lately, so I'm I'm super pumped about that. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's a little more pressure because you're switching between cameras and and you've got a whole bunch of other stuff going on, and you got to really pay attention to what you're doing. You don't want the stream to mess up because if it messes up, it messes up live. Um, but again, you make more money for your t- for your time. And you don't have to edit when you come home. So <laughs> I love live streaming um, and uh, I'm, I'm super pumped that that has been picking up. Um, I did a podcast recently talking about my new editing computer and I'm still working on it and just am happy to report that my uh, computer is still crushing it. For those of you who have not listened to that episode, um, I picked up a fully specced out 16 inch um, MacBook Pro and the one with the M1 Max chip, and have been running that for a little over a month now, and am super, super pumped about it. It's the first time I've replaced my editing systems in about eight years, and uh, honestly, I could not be happier. been cutting and putting together multiple layers of 8K and doing a lot of graphics-heavy stuff, a lot of long-form interview type projects, and it has just been so good that I have not even gotten the fans to, to turn on yet. Um, haven't even come close to stressing it out. So just a, a, a follow-up to that podcast to say that I have been uh, continuing to work on it day after day and um, just still happy with that decision, uh, more so probably now even because it's just continued to perform flawlessly. So if you listen to that podcast and you were kind of on the fence and you're still wanting to, to get a new computer and you're thinking about Mac, but you weren't sure if you wanted to spend the money, I'm telling you, it's it's totally worth it. So that's my update there. Um Trying to think of other things that have been going on in the business. It's been really busy, which is great. I've been doing a lot of um, a lot of branding videos lately for different um, different companies. A lot of real estate agencies, actually, in particular, have contacted me about doing branding projects. I don't really do much real estate videos themselves because the market's just way too flooded where I live for that. Um, but branding videos for real estate agencies, marketing videos to, to market the agency itself, that is something I do. And I've been getting a lot of calls about that lately. Um, and I've sent out quite a few proposals on that. So that's interesting. Um, and I think what's interesting to me is that the housing market's kind of shifting a little bit. Um, sales are starting to slow down a little and um, uh, rates, interest rates are starting to go up. And I kind of thought because of that, it might slow down the amount of people that are calling me for branding videos, but um, honestly, it hasn't changed anything. So um, I don't know. You know, I have no idea what that means or, or or what to think about that. All I know is is it's been it's been really interesting to see how many phone calls and emails I've gotten about branding videos for real estate agencies lately. Um, I enjoy doing those because they're usually. They're usually like one to two day shoots. You get to script everything out and figure out, all right, what's the message? What makes you different? And kind of figure out what their angle is going to be. And then you write out the script. And then I normally, after we write out the script, um, I will have them memorize or use a teleprompter. Typically like them to memorize more so than use a teleprompter if possible, though. Um, But I'll have them at least try to memorize um, the lines that I know that they're going to be on camera for. Um, They don't need to memorize the whole script. Just the lines that I want them to be on camera and I will uh, shoot an interview and they'll just say those lines and I'll shoot that off with like two cameras and then they can hold up their phone and read the whole entire script off from start to finish usually once or twice um, 
uh, as as a voiceover, and then um, I basically take that voiceover recording and remove um, the parts where they're on camera um, and put those in the voice with the voiceover. So basically, when you look at the timeline, you have the entire voiceover, and then there's like three or four parts where you actually um, the voiceover is replaced with them 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 their memorized lines where they're on camera, and then the rest of it's filled up with B-roll that we pre-plan, um, and it works out really well. It allows me to um, deliver them uh, an interview-driven. Um, interview-driven branding video that's usually like one to two minutes long that kind of helps identify like who they are, you know, what their background is, what makes them different, who their target market is, how they can help, that kind of thing. Um, and they don't have to memorize everything. They just have to memorize a few lines. The rest of it they can read as a voiceover. And then the rest of it's filled up with um, with B-roll. And um, we, we get to pre-plan and we'll like plan a day where they're going to go walk through a house and or a couple houses and they'll be showing different sets of clients the homes and we might have like shots in an office place where they're working up paperwork we might have shots aerial shots of different communities or, or if it's like um commercial real estate some of the commercial real estate type of areas that they um they market toward um and we might get shots of them like having coffee with some customers um we might get shots of them with their family just different things like that to kind of mix in with the script it all just depends on what what it is that we're uh trying to um market the video toward but it's been really interesting um to to see how i've been getting an uptick of those lately um because i've gotten man i don't even know how many phone calls or emails about those i just kind of came out of nowhere just started really picking up um so that's been pretty awesome, and uh, continuing to do work for my um, my plastic surgeon client down in Austin. I'm actually super excited. Speaking of live stream, we're doing a really neat stream in o- October um, for my plastic surgeon client. I had this idea. I reached out to them and was like, "Hey," because uh, we've done we've been working together for like four or five years now. And I reached out to them and was like, "Hey, we should do." a live stream session and get a bunch of your surgeons and, uh, and whatnot into the room. And we should talk about stuff live. And they, they love the idea. And we started spitballing back and forth and ended up deciding that we should do one in October for breast cancer awareness month and involve the, um, breast cancer resource center, which most people know uh, who that is. And we're going to involve them and bring in someone from the resource center to be a mediator for the live stream or moderator for live stream moderator. Anyway, they're going to basically host it. And uh, we're going to be doing this live stream where people can ask questions, people who are um, either have breast cancer or who know someone who does, and maybe they want to learn more about um, not just breast cancer in general, but also like what to do after the fact. If, if women uh, unfortunately lose their breasts, like how can it, how can the reconstruction side of, from my client um, help them and things just, basically things that revolve around that. It's going to be a really cool live stream. I expect that we're going to get a lot of views and that's going to be in October and I'm super pumped about it. It's going to be a a pretty big undertaking. We're going to spend like a day or two of setup for it. Um, It's going to be a round table type of thing. We're going to have like four or five surgeons in the room plus the moderator from um, uh, Breast Cancer uh, Resource Center. And so I'm going to have to be running a lot of different channels of audio. I'm going to try to mic up all these different people with uh, lav mics. I think that'd be a little easier than booms. And um, 
and run everything into a mixer and then send that to my live stream board and then probably going to try to shoot it live off of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to try to shoot it live off of uh, four cameras, uh, two A1s and two FX6s. That's my plan, um, but we'll see. But I'm pretty pumped about that. That's a really cool project coming up. So I've got a lot of different projects going on right now, a lot with my engineering firm client, a lot with um, my client, the breast uh the breast reconstruction surgeon uh, client in Austin and just all kinds of different stuff that we've got going on right now. And just, just been a great year, <laughs> but I guess I, that's enough of that. And I'll get into today's podcast. Um, if you are still here with us and I haven't bored you yet, well, congratulations. <laughs> um, today's podcast is all about Canon and what I think is Canon's biggest problem. And really there's two problems and, and I'm going to go into that today. But um, really, my my biggest problem with Canon is I think that Canon is not... is I think Canon is so focused on profits that they're not really thinking about their customer base. And that's my problem with Canon. And as a result, they've made some decisions that I personally think are head scratchers that don't make a lot of sense to me and I think have uh, pushed a lot of people away from Canon over the years and is still kind of keeping people from going back to Canon today. Uh, I know before the FX6 came out, uh, I was really interested in Canon C500 Mark II, um, but I knew that I couldn't go that route. And I'm going to get into why today and and uh, why I, I kind of stuck with Sony uh, over to Canon. And we're just going to talk a little bit about about what I think Canon's doing that, that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. First off, we'll start back with Canon in the earlier DSLR days. You know, everybody knows that Canon, um, w- Canon really revolutionized DSLR videography with the uh, 5D Mark II and 5D Mark III. What a lot of people don't realize is that Nikon at the same time actually already had some cameras that could shoot videos, DSLR cameras that could shoot videos, but it didn't take off the way that Canon's did. And so Canon's 5D Mark II took off unlike Nikon's and became really popular. And then the 5D3 became even more popular. And then that kind of started the trend of DSLR filming. Um, and then which eventually led to mirrorless filming, which is kind of where a lot of those cameras are today. And then of course, you know, you've got the cinema line as well. Canon came out with the C300, which at the time, there wasn't really a lot of large sensor options for interchangeable lens cinema cameras that had, you know, built-in NDs and audio inputs and stuff like that. So when the C300 Mark I came out, it kind of took the industry by storm because it was such a different type of camera and almost every newsroom um, and documentary crew and and a production house across the country had multiple C300s and were using them for all kinds of different projects. And back then, I mean, these cameras were shooting in 8-bit, lower bit rates, and and uh, they just don't have near the image quality we have today. But it was still revolutionary for its time, and the C300 was very expensive when it came out, but it, people paid the price because they knew how... how um, it would change the way that they could do projects and the style in which they could capture a lot of this documentary or news type stuff or uh, productions that were doing a lot of corporate commercial work, that kind of thing. And so it was really popular. And then the C100 came out, which is like the cheaper end version of that. Um, and that that was like a big deal for Canon because they had all this going for them. And then most of you know that Canon started to slip up. When they came out with the 5D Mark IV, they kind of took some steps back. The 5D3 was already kind of getting a little behind because cameras like Sony had started coming out with their SLT line 
well, I guess their SLT line was already out, but Sony had come out with some cameras that had like uh, HD 60, which the 5D3 did not have. Um, so five, the 5D was kind of falling behind in the slow motion category and, and whatnot, but it was still really popular and people were really stoked to see what the 5D4 would have. And when the 5D4 came out, it was really lack, lacking. <laughs> the 5D4 um, was severely cropped for 4K. I'm talking like 1.7 something times crop. I mean, it was insane. And it shot to a very inefficient codec that ate people's computers alive, both in storage space and was just hard to edit. And just had a lot of problems and just wasn't a very popular camera. And people around that time were just really disappointed. Meanwhile, you had manufacturers like Sony that were starting to come out with their mirrorless lines. They had already, Sony already had the A7S and the A7S II by this point, and they had some of their A6000 line of cameras, they had the A7R line, and they had IBIS, they had uh, full-frame 4K that did not crop, and so Canon was starting to really fall behind here, and so a lot of people started making the transition over to mirrorless and over to Sony. And then Panasonic at the same time also had their GH line, which is really popular among the budget crowd. The GH line had lots of slow motion options, 4K options before Sony ever even did. And that was a really popular uh, line of cameras that was really affordable. And then um, at the same time, Canon also had come out around this time or a little before the 5D4, they had come out with a C300 Mark II, which you would have thought because the C300 was so pop, C300 Mark I was so popular, you would have thought the C300 II would be just as popular. And it was a popular camera, especially for people who already were in the Canon world. But it wasn't nearly as popular as Sony's FS7. And here's why. Canon was so like wrapped up in, okay, we have this great success with the C300. We're going to follow it up with the C300 III and we're going to keep the prices really high. But they weren't paying attention to the market and what the market was saying, right? Just like they did with the 5D4 a couple years later when they came out with it, which they totally missed the mark on that because the market really did not like that camera in terms of uh, video. Now photographers did, but video-wise, they totally missed the mark. But before that, when they came out with the C300 II, they missed the mark uh, almost even more than they did with the 5D series. And the reason is, is the C300 Mark II was capped at 4K30 and cost $16,000 on launch. Meanwhile, the Sony FS7 had just come out right before the C300 Mark II, and it cost literally half the price at $8,000 at that time and shot 4K60 internal at 10 bet. And the C300 Mark II arguably had better color and had prettier image, in my opinion, and most people thought that. Um, and it had other features that the Sony didn't have, but most people were like, I'm not going to pay literally twice the price, 16 grand versus $8,000. I'm not going to pay literally twice the price for a C300 Mark II, right? When Sony, for half the cost, has an FS7 that has 4K60 that the C300 doesn't have. And the FS7 is ready to go on the shoulder out of the box, whereas the C300 Mark II had this like kettle design that required you to really build it up and rig it out if you wanted to film from the shoulder, which it was marketed toward the dot crowd. So that was kind of a problem, right? Because not only were you having to buy the camera, but you're having to like build it up and buy all these accessories just to get it on the shoulder. Whereas the FS7, most people like myself who had FS7s, we tweaked it and modified it to make it more comfortable. But you could literally go to the store and buy an FS7 for half the price of C302 and go out that afternoon and throw it on your shoulder and film. It was ready to go enough that you could film from the shoulder the day you bought it. 
And Canon just really misread the market there, really missed the mark by not only having a camera that didn't have 4K60 and that and when at a time when people were wanting it and that had a camera that had to be built up but but to to have those to be missing those things and come out of the gate at twice the price of f7 was a huge misstep and this was all happening around the same time that people are already switching to sony for mirrorless and so as a result, what ended up happening is more and more and more people kept jumping out of the Canon system coming to Sony where things were more affordable and more feature rich. Now, I do think at the time Canon still had a prettier cameras and prettier image. You can watch Free Solo, an Oscar winning documentary that um, will keep you on the edge of your seat. That was primarily shot in C300s and you can see how pretty the image is. It's a great looking image, but they missed the mark either way. And the market speaks for itself because yes, people still bought those cameras, but not nearly as many people bought those as, as the people who moved to and bought into the Sony system. Well, that was kind of the thing for a while. And people thought, well, you know, maybe eventually Canon will come out with cameras that will kind of remedy the situation. And they kind of did when they came out with a C200, which was cheaper than the C300 Mark II and shot raw cinema raw light or Canon raw light internally, but, and it had 4K60, but they crippled it by giving it only two recording options. You could either record to the CRL or the raw format, essentially internal or 10 bit, um, excuse me, um, eight bit MP4 files. There was no 10 bit middle codec like you would have on the FS7 or the C300 Mark II, uh, for example. And here's why that's the problem. A really robust 10-bit log file is arguably the most useful file type or format type for most productions. Now, everybody has this idea that everyone wants to shoot in RAW, but in reality, when you look at production houses, yes, they might shoot in RAW at certain times, but most of the time, they're going to be shooting to a 10-bit log file the raw is used for certain commercial applications, but not nearly as much as a 10-bit log file. And then the lower bitrate MP4 type of stuff, the small file size stuff, I mean, that's useful for certain things. Like if you're doing, you know, recording a, a speaking engagement for five hours or something, that then that's fine. But, but you need to have a robust 10-bit log file. And the C200 didn't have that. And it obviously could have because it had internal raw. <laughs> and they just felt like... Our customer base is going to buy this camera if they want to shoot raw, but if they want to have a 10-bit codec, we're going to force them to buy the more expensive C300 Mark II. And that really honestly pissed a lot of people off because they're like, dude, we would love to have the C200 and have the ability to shoot raw internal when we want it, but we can't buy that if it doesn't have a 10-bit codec also because we're going to use the 10-bit log file most of the time. The raw would be cool to have, but only for certain projects. The rest of the time, we're going to want to shoot 10-bit log, not 8-bit, you know, MP4 files. They could have done it. They clearly did it, did not do it though, because they wanted to force you into the C300 world of cameras if you wanted to have that 10-bit log file and you were going to have to pay a lot more money to get it. It made absolutely no sense. If anything, if anything, they should have given the internal raw to the C300 Mark II as an, a firmware update since it's more expensive and gave the C200 just the 10-bit log and the MP4 file and made it a cheaper camera. That would have made more sense. But to give it the raw and no 10-bit file, but give the more expensive camera a 10-bit file and no internal raw just 
absolutely makes absolute, it just makes absolute no sense. <laughs> like what, what, you know? And so this is the kind of stuff that Canon did over and over and over and over and over again that drove people freaking nuts. Well, then they started to kind of get their act together. They finally decided to move over to mirrorless and they came out with the EOS R and the EOS R was not some groundbreaking camera. It didn't have great formats or, or uh, codec options or high frame rate 4K or anything like that internal, but it was okay and it was acceptable because it was Canon's first attempt at a full frame mirrorless camera. You can, you can understand that that camera is not going to be, you know, com comparable to like what we have today because it was their very first, very first introduction to full frame mirrorless. A couple of iterations later, they finally came out with the EOS R5, which people were really excited about. Like, this is finally Canon realizing that they need to give the customers what they want. So finally, they came out with a camera that shot 8K internal, that shot a 4K HQ file internal, which is basically oversampled 8K to 4K, that shot a 4K pixel bin file for... Um, those times where you're worried about overheating. And then that also had great photo capabilities and 10-bit codecs. But the problem was the overheating, right? And it's gotten better through firmware updates, but it was a huge problem. And a lot of people could not buy into Canon still because the R5 had so much, uh, so many overheating issues. Canon had also at this time already come out with the 1DX Mark III, which was an awesome camera, which by the way, I forgot about the 1DX2. The 1DX2 came out around the same time as the 5D4, and it was a pretty nice camera. It did have 4K internal up to uh, 60 frames with a slight crop, um, but it was such an expensive DSLR that most people, most people weren't going to buy it unless they were designated sports and wildlife shooters for the most part. Um, but they come out with a 1DX3 by this point, which did have uh, higher bit, higher frame rate 4K options and internal RAW. So when I'm talking about the R5 here, the R5 was a little bit of a disaster with its overheating, but they did have a DSLR, the 1DX Mark III, that did have great options. So it's not like they didn't have any options. But the problem is, is the 1DX3 was a DSLR camera, right? And it, and C Canon had already announced it was their last DSLR. They weren't coming out with any more. So a lot of people did not buy the 1DX Mark III, even though the 1DX3 did not overheat like the R5 and the 1DX3 was more reliable and had uh, raw internal and all this stuff, which the R5 also had. The problem with the 1DX3 is may it may be more reliable, but you're buying the last of their DSLR cameras, which means if you you know buy lenses for it, those lenses are going to be outdated. I mean, this is the end of the line for DSLR. Canon literally said that. So why would you want to go drop $6,000 plus on a 1DX3 and buy glass for it, knowing that it's the last iteration of the DSLR line for Canon? People aren't going to want to do that. So the only people who really bought the 1DX3 were people who were already super heavily invested in Canon glass and who shot sports and wildlife and just simply needed an upgrade to their body. But most people did not buy it because it didn't make Makes sense to buy an old aging DSLR. Everyone was moving to mirrorless. So you had the R5, which was their mirrorless iteration, but again, it had the overheating problems. Well, Canon finally had also come out with some cinema cameras, and this is where things start to become, this is where the biggest problem to me comes into play. We've already seen that Canon cripples their cameras, right? The 5D4 was crippled by its severe crop factor, which is to force you to buy their cinema cameras if you wanted uncropped 4K. 
their cinema cameras were crippled by this, their pricing and the lack of frame rates. And, and the C200 was crippled by the fact that it didn't have a proper 10-bit codec. These were all obvious decisions by Canon. These were not hardware or software limitations. These were clearly decisions that were made by Canon to prevent their customers from having certain things so that they would have to buy other cameras to have those things. They were obviously crippling their cameras intentionally. They can't even deny it. They've never even officially have denied it because they can't, because it's obvious that they've been crippling their cameras intentionally. And who knows if the R5 was crippled with its overheating intentionally or if that just was a flaw with the camera. Nobody will ever know the truth on that. But I at least commend Canon for trying with the R5, and it could have been a great camera had it not been for the overheating problems. But where Canon kind of takes another step backwards is with their cinema line. Around the time the R5 came out, Canon also came out with two brand new cinema cameras. The Super 35 C300 Mark III, which retailed for $11,000, way more reasonably priced than the C300 Mark II was. And it shot 4K up to 120 internal and um, had access to the DGO or dual gain output um, sensor, which basically records at two different exposure levels in at one time and then combines the frame, kind of like HDR in a way, but not really HDR. It just gives you a higher dynamic range when recording. So it had that, which is really awesome. And they also came out with, at the same time, the C500 Mark II. And the C500 Mark II shot um, 4K up to 60 frames in, no, that's a lie. It shot five. 5 point something K. I can't remember. In fact, let me Google this because I don't want to misquote this. I don't like giving out false information. So Canon C500 to, I know it was close to 6K. Let me see, 5.9K. So the C500 Mark II came out and it was a full frame camera. It came out the same time as C303, full frame camera that shot 5.9K um, up to, trying to make sure I tell you right here, up to 30 frames per second, and then it shot um, 4K up to 60 frames per second. And you might be wondering, well, why didn't it do 4K up to 120 if the C303 could do it? And honestly, I think the answer is just the frames, the, the uh, sensor size. It's easier to shoot higher frame rates on the C303 because it's Super 35 than it is on the full frame uh, camera, which takes more processing power. So that's why you see that. But the C3, C500 II is an awesome camera, 5.9K, up to 30 frames per second with the CRL or the the raw light codec, um, and 4K up to 60 frames, all internal, all full frame, great autofocus on both cameras. Um, they were just, the, the, the C500 Mark II, C300 Mark III were incredible offerings from Canon, no doubt about it. The problem, though, is this, and this is where things get interesting. So the C502 was retailing for $16,000, which was a lot of money, but honestly, it didn't really have any competitors. Um, Sony had the FX9, which retailed for $11,000, and it was full frame uh, like the C502, but it didn't have the same features. The, C, the, the FX9 um, could not compete with the C502 feature-wise. It was capped at 4K. Um, and did not have any sort of internal light the, uh, or internal raw the way that Canon C502 did. So the C502 was a 
was between Sony and Canon, I think it's the best of the sub $20,000 cinema cameras out there um, compared to Sony. Um, no doubt about it. The C500 Mark II is amazing. And the C303 is without a doubt, in my opinion, the best super 35 sub $20,000 cinema camera on the market today. Um, and I, I truly believe that. Canon has two incredible cameras there. And I'm not saying that they're not great. I think they're both great. And when the C502 came out, I was very interested in it because I thought it checked a lot of boxes. Beautiful color, great autofocus, um, high um, uh, high amount of uh, resolution at 5.9K, decent frame rates, uh, great dynamic range. I mean, it, it checked a lot of boxes for me. And even at $16,000, I thought, yes, it's expensive, but it is a camera that's totally worth the price. The problem, though, is this, and this is where, we're, where I'm really going with it today, and this is where the cripple hammer continues to come back in. The problem is, is the C502 and the C303 both are mounted with Canon's old EF mount, which makes absolutely zero sense. Zero sense. Even the red Raptor, V-Raptor, that came out has Canon's new RF mount. Why on earth... Does Canon's own cinema line come out with EF-mounted cinema cameras? When the RF line already existed and Canon already said they were moving to RF. And here's the thing that goes even further. You might say, well, you know, it's because there's a lot of pre-existing EF glass and a lot of EF cinema lenses. And yes, there is a lot of EF glass and EF cinema lenses on the market. But the problem is, is you can adapt those EF cinema lenses or EF photo lenses the L glass, you can mount all that stuff to the C500 if the C500 was RF mount using an adapter. So to me, just like the red V Raptor had RF, it would make more sense for Canon Cinema Line to have RF mount because you can run the new RF glass or you can adapt the old glass. You get to pick and choose. You could do either or. But by going with EF, you cannot buy an adapter from RF to EF, only the other way around. You can put RF glass on RF cameras and EF glass on RF cameras, but on EF cameras, you can only run EF glass. So by putting an EF mount on the C303 and the C502, they prevented anybody from ever being able to use their newer RF glass on their cinema cameras. And here's where this becomes a big problem. When someone like me sees the C502 and I think, man, that looks like an amazing cinema camera. I would be interested in owning that. But then I see it's EF mount and I start thinking, well, that means I'm going to have to buy old DSLR glass in order to run the C502. And Canon is moving away from their DSLR glass and they're moving to RF glass. Why would I want to drop $16,000 on a cinema camera that can't run the newer glass? Even if I had a stockpile of EF lenses, I still would want it to have an RF mount because I could adapt them. But... Without the, without, with the uh, EF mount, I can never, ever run the RF glass. And to me, that just absolutely makes no sense. And so if I was going to buy a C502, not only would I not be able to use the RF glass on it, and, but that also means that if I bought like an R5, for example, as a B cam, the R5 is RF mounted. So I would have two cameras with two different lens mounts, one with EF and one with RF. 
And since I can never use RF glass on the EF mounted camera, that means I'm only going to be able to buy EF glass and I'm going to have to run old glass on both cameras. And that would just freaking suck. Like, why would I want, why would I want to do that? It makes zero sense. And you could argue that it would make sense if the C303 and C502 came out many years ago, but they had already come out after Canon had developed the RF line. So why on earth would they not make these cameras RF mount? Even Red made them R their cameras in RF mount. It makes zero sense. And so I really don't understand that. The other problem is this. Speaking of glass, Canon, this just recently came out, but in late August, it was announced by a lens manufacturer that Canon had approached them and said, stop making third-party glass in RF mount, specifically autofocus glass. The reason is this. Canon does not license its RF mounting design to any other lens manufacturer. And so if a lens manufacturer like Tamron or Sigma, for example, wanted to make RF glass for Canon's new mirrorless cameras, they will not get from Canon any sort of license or any sort of paperwork on how the RF lens mount works and operates. So the only way they can develop autofocus capable glass is to reverse engineer it. Basically, buy some Canon cameras and some Canon lenses and take them apart and see how they're made. And then they can develop autofocus glass for Canon. Sony, by contrast, doesn't do that. Sony gives any lens manufacturer that wants to make Sony EF glass, they can get a license from Sony, and Sony gives them um, the ability to make autofocus-capable glass for any of their E-mount cameras. Any, any lens manufacturer out there can make Sony E-mount glass if they want and Sony E-mount autofocus glass because Sony doesn't care. They give it out to everybody. And that's why that's why when you go in to buy Sony and you're looking at their lenses on like B&H Photo, for example, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of lenses because Sony has a ton of lenses of their own, but they also let Tamron and Sigma and, and all of these other companies make glass for their same cameras. But Canon, not only does Canon not give out information on how their camera lenses are made, but in addition, they are going after companies like this company, Viltrox or whatever the name of it was. They're going after these companies and are saying, stop making EF mounted glass. Original or RF mounted glass. Originally, they said stop making RF mounted autofocus glass because they know that that was reverse engineered in order to be created. But these lens manufacturers are so scared of getting sued by Canon that they just quit making RF glass altogether. So when you look for Canon RF lenses today, you will only see RF lenses made by one brand, and that is Canon. And that is because Canon wants you to buy their glass and their glass only. It's a profit thing. And I said earlier at the beginning of this podcast that Canon is always so wrapped up with the profit that they kind of miss what their customers want. They just don't care. And I'm telling you right now, customers want the ability to have third-party lens options. The reason is, is because third-party lens manufacturers a lot of times offer cheaper alternatives, which obviously Canon doesn't like. And third-party lens manufacturers also offer creative lenses that um, a lot of times the, the, the bigger manufacturers won't take the time to make. A good example of that is I own all Sony G Master glass except for one lens, which is made by Leoa um, or Venus Optics is the the company. But Venus Optics makes a lens uh, uh, 
uh, lineup of lenses called Leoa, and I have their 90 millimeter 2.8 2x macro. Sony does not make a 2x macro lens. A 2x macro, basically, when you buy a, a typical macro, like if you buy a 90 millimeter. Uh, 2.8 macro from Sony, it's a 1x macro. That means it has a one-to-one magnification. It's a macro lens, but what you're going to see is one-to-one. Well, a 2x macro is two-to-one, which is basically twice the magnification of a one-to-one macro lens. Sony does not make any 2x macro lenses at all, but because they open their lens mount up to other lens manufacturers, other lens manufacturers can get creative and create affordable and interesting glass. And Leoa is both of those things. The Venus Optics Leoa lenses are both cheap and interesting. So the 90 millimeter 2.82x macro I own, it costs like $500 or something, $600. I don't know. It wasn't very expensive. It's a beautiful lens, has hardly, basically no chromatic aberration. Optically, it's gorgeous. And the 2x macro on it is insane. I can get crazy close to people's uh, eyes or to uh, a bug or to water drop on a blade of grass, like things that are just really rich with detail. And I can get close to that with this 2X macro lens. And because Sony is happy to let third-party lens manufacturers make lenses, customers like me can buy stuff like that. But Canon, Canon refuses to let third-party lens manufacturers have that ability because they want you to only buy their lenses. Well, that means that you're going to spend more money. And it also means that you're not going to get access to the interesting lenses that a Sony and, and, and Nikon and Panasonic shooters get access to because all of those brands allow third-party lens manufacturers to make lenses for their cameras. Only Canon does not. Canon's the only one. And it's ridiculous because it forces you into their system, which may not always be the right system for you. And and I just don't understand that. I'm, I, I guess I do understand it. They do it for, for the profit, but it totally screws their customers over and forces them to not be able to have access to 2X lenses like I just bought the other day or not have access to more affordable glass. And I do own all G Master glass. I don't, uh, other than that one. So it's not like I have, you know, a bunch of Tamrons laying around, but I have a lot of friends that do because it's more affordable and it's easier to get in. And if you're doing this as a hobby or maybe you just don't see the value in owning, you know, the most expensive lens, you know, third-party lens manufacturers are a great thing for you, a great thing for a lot of people. And third-party lens manufacturers, by coming up with interesting lenses, they make the bigger manufacturers like Sony or Panasonic want to come up with interesting lenses of their own. And so it's just a great thing, right? And it doesn't hurt Sony, for example. It doesn't hurt Nikon to allow third-party lens manufacturers to create lenses. Yes, they might, people, customers might not always buy your glass, but they're more prone to buy your bodies because they get access to all this glass. And that's a big part of the reason why people continue to shoot and buy into other brands outside of Canon today. Because Canon has this this greedy mentality that actually ends up hurting them because if they would open their lens mounts up to other manufacturers, they would sell more Canon bodies because more people would be interested in owning their stuff. But because companies like Sony do this and companies like Sony have really improved their image quality and their color science, Sony's come a long way. To me today, you don't even have to have, used to, like you would have to have Canon if you if you were wanting a big manufacturer. I'm not talking about Red or Airy or anything or Blackmagic. I'm just talking about the big the big like big name players like uh, Panasonic or Nikon or Canon or Sony. Typically, 
if you were a Sony shooter, you would not have the same type of image quality that you would in Canon, but the, the, the times have changed, right? Sony's come a long way. Nikon looks great. Panasonic looks great. So you don't have to buy a Canon to have great image quality anymore. And so if other camera companies are making more affordable cameras and are opening their lenses up to different lens manufacturers and they aren't crippling their cameras, naturally customers are going to gravitate toward that. Here's something else that's interesting. When you look at Canon's cameras, and this goes back to the whole cripple hammer thing, a lot of Canon's cameras don't have the same picture profiles. So you might buy a C500 Mark II or C303 and might have access to certain C-Log profiles that are not available on some of their mirrorless cameras. Some of them there are, but some of them they're not. So it really depends on what camera you buy from Canon that dictates what profile you're going to get access to. When you look at Sony, for example, Sony doesn't do any of that crap. Whether you buy a Venice 2, <laughs> that is like literally one of the most expensive cinema cameras on the market, or whether you buy a entry-level A7 Mark IV for $2,500, it doesn't matter what cam what, what, which model you buy. All of them are Sony E-mount. All of them take the same lenses, and all of them have a similar color science, and all of them have the same picture profile options, Right? That's the way it should be. Now, of course, if you buy a Venice, you're going to get more raw options and whatnot, and you should because it costs an insane amount of money and was used for movies like Top Gun, you know, to Top Gun Maverick recently. But the point is, is that whether you're buying the Venice or whether you're buying an A7 IV, all of them have S-Log 3S Gamut 3 Cine, all of them have 10-bit codecs now, and all of them have the exact same lens mount, which you can use can uh, Sony EF or excuse me, Sony E-mount glass, or you can adapt other brands too. So there's so many options. You could buy a Venice and run PL glass if you wanted, or 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 you could buy a, an A7 IV and run native or PL glass or EF glass or whatever, because it's all the same lens mount all the way across the board. You can run um, native lenses on all of them, or you can adapt to all of them, and you have third-party options and the same picture profiles and similar color science. It just, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. They give the customers what they want, and they're not crippling their bodies. Canon, you buy the C500 II, you have a great camera, but if you buy their mirrorless camera, you probably have different profile options, and you have different lens mounts, <laughs> and you can't buy any third-party lenses for them. It just is stupid, absolutely stupid. But these are the decisions that Canon makes, and this is why I think so many people have moved away from them and why they're not moving back even though they have great cameras like the C502 and it's a damn shame because the C502 is a badass camera but until they come out with an RF mounted version a lot of people aren't going to be interested you know and I just really don't understand that I really really don't and Another thing that's interesting, and I want to say this, like there are other newer uh, Canon cameras that come out that are great. The C70 is a great camera. It's a very popular Super 35 small format, you know, not quite DSLR, but a little bit bigger, but still small format cinema camera. And then they have the uh, their hybrid, the R5C, which doesn't have the overheating issues of the R5 um, and is an interesting camera. It does have terrible battery life. Um, and a few other issues, doesn't have IBIS and stuff like that, but it doesn't matter too much, but it's a great camera, right? But the C70 and the R5C are RF mount. They're great cameras, but they're RF mount. So if you wanted to buy an R5C or a C70 and use it as a B camera to the C500 II or the C303, 
you're running different. You're once again running different lens mounts. So even within their cinema line, they have different lens mounts. It just makes freaking no sense. So that's my problem with Canon, and it's not just my problem with Canon. It is the problem with Canon, and it's the problem that so many people have had with them, and why so many people like myself don't shoot with Canon. It's not that I have like when when you look at my gear. I mean, I have two FX sixes and. Um, I have two A1s and um, I've, I've been shooting with Sony for a long time. And, and it's not it's not that I'm just some giant Sony fanboy. It's just that Canon makes no freaking sense. <laughs> and I don't want to buy into that. I don't want to buy into their stuff and be trying to figure out how I'm going to, you know, what lenses to buy and how I'm going to get what lenses to adapt from one camera to the next or why one camera has a certain picture profile and the other does not, or why one's crippled and another is not. I just don't want to deal with any of that. Sony just simplifies it. Hey, it doesn't matter what camera you buy. We'll give you, you know, we'll give you access to everything and uh, just buy the model that fits you best. And that's the way, that's the way it should be. And that's why Sony, in my opinion, has uh, come up uh, to be so far ahead of Canon these days. And Canon sells a lot of photo cameras to photographers, None of this really affects photographers as much. Well, I guess it does. Actually, third-party lens manufacturers, that affects photographers. Um, but um, it's even it's an even bigger problem when you look at the video side of things. Uh, but that's the problem with Canon, and, and I don't know... I don't know what they'll do to change. Um, I do think that eventually they'll come out with C500s and C300s that are an RF mount, but how many more years is it going to be before that happens? And even if that does happen... Canon still isn't letting third-party lens manufacturers make lenses for them, and Canon still is giving some profiles to some cameras and not to others, which, again, doesn't make sense. So even if they do come out with RF-mounted cinema cameras, it still doesn't solve the other problems. At the end of the day, Canon's got... Their biggest problem is, is that they've got a problem understanding their market or caring what the market wants. And they're just so focused on what they can do to keep people to buy, to dictate what people buy, um, that they're missing, in my opinion, they're missing the mark. And after all these years, you would think they would have gotten it. And I thought they did when they came out with the C500 too, but, um, clearly they, they have not quite under, they still have not quite figured that out yet. And they still have not gotten it. And, uh, quite frankly, I hope the market continues to shift and people continue to move away from Canon until one day they finally wise up and, and change their attitude towards this stuff. Because right now for, as a consumer, it, it sucks because Canon makes good stuff. They just screw themselves and, 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 uh, I don't know. I just don't want to support that. But anyway, that's the problem with Canon. I would love to know your thoughts. Are you a Canon shooter? Do any of these problems affect you? Do you not care? Hop on over to the Filming with Josh page and let me know. Let's have a conversation about it. Um, again, the Filming with Josh Facebook group is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Just go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh, and ask to join the group today, and I'll see you there. Take care. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.